and welcome to the Eclipse podcast series about biodiversity and ecosystem services. I'm Eva Banshagi. This episode is about ecological restoration. Nature is declining at unprecedented rates in all regions of the planet. This loss, the biodiversity loss, is accelerating with grave impacts on us, people, We and all other species depend on healthy ecosystems. The nature is the very foundation of our health and the quality of life, economies, livelihoods and food security. As biodiversity loss is a direct threat to human well-being, the restoration of ecosystems has never been more urgent. There are thousands of successful ecological restorations worldwide, but it's simply not enough in the light of the actual state of the planet. In this episode, I'm talking about ecological restoration with two guests. First, with Dr. Judith Fisher, socio-ecologist, who works for the UN-founded Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, and also for the International Union for Conservation of Nature. She works as a researcher in Perth, Australia, and she is the leading author of our report titled What is hampering current restoration effectiveness? We may think that restoration is for professionals, I mean for ecologists, conservationists, but isn't it everybody's issue? Of course it is. When you mean everybody, that really stretches from the highest level of government down to local people and the place where they live and the place that they spend their time in, they have their knowledge about, and that they would like to see maintained in a really healthy, biodiverse way into the future. So restoration is everybody's responsibility and everybody has enough knowledge and skills to contribute in whatever way is most appropriate to themselves. I also mean that every one of us benefits from restoration projects, even if we think that this is far away somewhere else, far away from my home. Yes, that provided it is good restoration, of course. I mean, We don't want, with the UN decade of restoration coming forward, that we need to be careful that what people are doing is good restoration, restoring biodiverse areas for the future. So if the restoration, and I put quotes around that word restoration, which is being conducted, is good quality restoration, bringing a biodiverse ecosystem into operation, then yes, everybody will benefit from it as well, whether they live there or whether they live somewhere else around the world, because it's going to help to not only maintain biodiversity, but reduce climate change impacts and really try and make a significant difference to the status of the planet. So yes, people will benefit, even if they are distant from where the good restoration is conducted. You have just come back from the bush where you work on a restoration project. Can you please tell me what kind of ecosystem you have been assisting to recover? So I've been working today in um, a woodland with wetlands running throughout the woodland. It's in an urbanised area, so it has um, a school nearby, a main road, etc. But it is a woodland very close to the coastal area, but it's not a coastal ecosystem. It's what's called a Tuat woodland, which is one of the dominant 
plant communities where I am in Perth in southwestern Australia. As you have just mentioned, the UN decade of restoration will be started by the beginning of the next year. How urgent is it to restore the degraded areas? It's critically urgent. but I mean, the greater urgency is not to degrade in the first place. So the greater urgency is to persuade the governments or whoever is responsible for looking after a place that they should not degrade it in the first place. Look after it and allow it, as we are doing now, just to make sure that ecosystem can function well. The highest urgency is avoid degradation. Once we have the degradation, and um, my figure's not exactly right, but I think it's about 40% of the climate change we are experiencing is coming from the degradation of landscapes. So to get some of that biodiversity back and to restore it is also critical. But first, let's not degrade. And how much of the Earth's surface should be restored? Is it possible to determine? So can you make a sort of wake-up call that, hey, if you don't restore 30 or 40 percent, some tipping points in biodiversity loss will occur. Uh, there's a lot of scientific debate going on about that at the moment, the 30-30, etc. But a personal opinion, I don't know that you can just say, well, X percentage of the planet needs restoring. Because if you're in a river system or if you're in a woodland or a desert or in a tropical, highly uh, biodiverse area, everywhere is different. So to pull a figure out of the air to say, well, we must restore extent of the globe is tricky but that's the discussions that are going on at the moment we must see where those discussions go i think if you have some sort of a target such as this one you've just discussed it at least gives something to aim for and something to measure against so if we have a target that says well we must restore 30 percent of terrestrial landscapes then we can at least measure over time if we are moving towards that target if we don't have a target which just says, well, it's the UN decade of restoration, let's all start restoring, we will not be able to measure the impact and whether that restoration has been effective. So certainly to put a target on it is important. How we set that target is very critical because I think a different types of ecosystems, whether it's a wetland, a river or a desert, are very, very different places and have different approaches as to whether we're able to store them or not. Our second guest is Dr. Craig Bullock, research fellow at the University College Dublin and one of the authors of our report on restoration. First, he's talking about the barriers of successful ecological restoration. I suppose the, one of the principal barriers is that it can be difficult to get institutional buy-in, for instance, from government. There may be support from a particular government agency, but you really need the wider support of other government departments and other local government institutions. I suppose in, in particular with restoration, you need integrated land use policies. You don't want policies which are going to be counterproductive to the restoration that you're trying to bring about. So if you're trying to restore a habitat, you don't want that habit, that restoration process to be threatened by external factors, such as polluted water coming into the restored environment or, or just a lack of water, for instance. So there's a lot of abstraction for agriculture from elsewhere. You don't want a lot of invasive species coming in from outside. You need that restoration to be integrated into wider land use policy. According to scientists, 
Restoration is a social phenomenon. Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes. That is not always the case, but that's certainly what it should be because the whole concept of restoration is one which can really galvanize uh, public awareness and, and opinion. So you can use that to bring about participation in the restoration and in participation for a quality environment. And it can also become a phenomenon of wider societal change as well be that for uh, demand for environmental protection, transparency of decision-making, and more in the way of democratic values and, and inequalities. So restoration can be part of a, a bigger picture. The report also says that one of the key enabling factors is societal integration with the restoration project. So it means that we should integrate the society to these projects. That's definitely possible. I mean, that the mechanics of restoration is maybe something that is best understood by the scientists, that's true. But at the same time, just as we we're saying, environmental restoration is a strong force to motivate people's imagination of how the world should be. It could be seen as um, an opportunity of reversing some of the damage that we as human beings have inflicted on the natural environment since the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. So while environmental restoration itself may have something of a, a minority appeal, there is an opportunity to, to bring in the, the wider community to become actively involved in restoration. A lot of the actual things that you need to do to achieve environmental restoration, whether it be blocking drains or removing excess or invasive vegetation, this, is, this often requires some physical labor. So you find that people are often very willing, people who are stuck behind a desk for most of the week, are often very willing to, to get engaged with um, restoration because they feel they're doing something positive for the community, particularly if it's um, the restoration is, is on their doorstep, if it's a local habitat, a local environment which has been restored. It can be a real opportunity to bring in all sorts of people to contribute to that restoration. So we find that when we've established community groups in, to become involved with restoration, they often start off with the real enthusiasts, the people who have a real interest in nature. But then you very quickly attract all sorts of people with all sorts of skills, whether it be um, people who are very good with chainsaws, for instance, if trees need to be removed, people who might have access to a, a tractor or a digger, people who have accounting skills, for example, who can support the actual finances of a, a local group. There's a real opportunity to bring in a whole collection of different people to support restoration. And that's what you need. That's what you need to give that restoration credibility, I suppose, to, uh, to the likes of politicians and local decision makers. According to the Eclipse report we are talking about, so the report titled what is hampering current restoration effectiveness, there's a low political priority of restoration. But how could or should this be changed? Well, that is quite a challenge. But I think the main thing to make policymakers aware or politicians aware of is that the strong links between a high quality environment and people's quality of life. And those links are realized through what we call ecosystem services, which are the contributions that the environment to people and to society. And uh, I suppose one of the most important of those is the contribution that natural environments make to uh, people's physical, mental health and their well-being. The other ecosystem services as well, such as the provision of uh, quality water supplies, the protection that natural environments provides from storms, erosion, flooding, 
and from sea level rise. And uh, you can see that through these benefits, through this contribution that the restored natural environments make um, to in terms of ecosystem services, uh, there's also clear links with uh, mitigation and adaptation to climate change, which most governments are, are gradually, belatedly uh, realizing is probably the principal threat to the survival of our society. And what people should require from policymakers regarding restorations? Because Eclipse report says that restoration just doesn't count. Yes, in that um, Eclipse report, which you are referring to, which um, and those findings come from a group of stakeholders across Europe, and these are the feelings, is that it's not being driven very high level of policy and legislation. When we wrote that report, there has been quite a bit of change now. The um, European Commission is currently in the process, I believe, of developing a legislation around restoration. Each country of the European Union needs to respond. So that will actually bring it up into that higher policy level in Europe in the near future, which then we should trickle down to actions and policy at a different country level. You work with several international organizations. So you can follow how policymakers or how policies are changing. But I wonder what we, I mean, average citizens or societies, what role will we play in restoration? Society's part is to demand restoration, demand that it happens. And demand if you live near where it's happening, that it is done well and that you are part of the actual restoration, part of the design of how that area is going to be restored because you are the people who live there. So the community, the local people, um, the citizens, I think have as much responsibility as policymakers if we want it done well and if you want to see your planet healthy for your next generations, that restoration itself can lead you down that track. Um, it's a wonderful place for children. We haven't mentioned that. I mean, that's also much part of this. So the way we do restoration in Australia is very much about local communities. The work I'm doing at the moment in establishing a baseline study and understanding is all done with the people who live there in their voluntary time. They don't get paid for this. So some of the really big drivers of what's happening to restoration is here is coming from the local people. And because the local people are demanding that a natural area be looked after and restored, then that also comes to the policymakers to say, these people live here. These people are responsible, are our responsibility to provide for them. So I think people are probably, if not, well, we can't say one's more than the other, but if if local people in Europe and the findings of the Eclipse report will say the same thing, if we don't get society involved, then it just may become a very difficult thing to do well. It's not just all about technology and understanding science. It's about getting as many people as possible involved in the actual project from the very beginning before it starts throughout the whole process. So they feel ownership and they will continue to use those areas into the future. Yes, but even if the society is very much involved, it is pretty important that the restoration projects must be very well planned based on science. Of course, always, totally. And there's no doubt about that. Otherwise, we could do more degradation than we started with. So it must be based on science and it must be based on good knowledge which is the sort of work I'm doing at the moment, setting up this baseline, collecting a very comprehensive data set of the state of that place 
uh, before we start the management and the restoration. So we use that data set of knowledge that we are collecting, the biodiverse knowledge, um, and the situation within the area to determine how we're going to do the restoration, where we're going to prioritise, etc. And that baseline information which we have, we then use that to measure effectiveness. This is like the monitoring part of it, of that restoration over time. Not only the effectiveness for the biodiversity part of the restoration and how that's changed, but also the effectiveness from a financial perspective. We must make sure if we're, people are investing in restoration that it works and it does what we want it to. If not, no one will put, people will not put the money in again. It, it'll be a, a bigger disaster than as if it didn't happen in the first place. So we're setting up measures for both um, the economic and the ecological change and the social. So we can see how uh, people have become more involved or not um, and how we benefit it. That information at the start of the planning of the restoration, which is built on throughout the restoration, is really, uh, from, my, from my perspective, one of the most critical things in the planning and implementation of restoration. And then, you know, for the higher level within whosoever land it is, the linking to policies, etc., is then even more important for them because more and more people are involved. It's not just someone giving X million dollars to go and restore a river or a wetland and then sending a few scientists out to do it. It's about getting everybody involved in the whole process. According to the Eclipse report, we should make restoration count at the policies level and we should make restoration a preferred option on the society's level. As you are an environmental economist, I must ask if it is possible to set up a price for restored areas uh, because, you know, sometimes it's easier to make something count which has a price. It often is. The natural environment it means more to people, is valued more to people than you can express by means of a price in monetary terms. So that I have to make very clear. It has um, inherent value in its own right, and it has other values which people realize and which are important to them. But in many cases, through those ecosystem services, through those contributions that a quality environment can for tourism perhaps, or for water quality, it is sometimes possible to quantify those benefits in monetary terms. And that's very useful when you're talking to politicians or decision makers, because they are making lots of choices in relation to lots of social priorities, such as health or roads or anything like that, which are all expressed in terms of price. So the danger with the natural environment can be seen as having a value. If you can quantify some of those values and you can express those in monetary terms, not only do those decision makers realize that the natural environment has a value, but they can also see that value in the context of other decisions that they have to make. You took part in a lot of restoration projects and you have been working on several ones. Why is it important for you personally to take part in restoration projects? A lot of people do ask me that because I put a lot of voluntary time into that. I think we need a future for our children and for our next generations. Sometimes the youth are busy saying, my generation have made the destruction, but actually there's many of us in our generation who have not made the destruction. There are many of us in this generation who work very, very hard to prevent that destruction. So I'd like to see that a little bit more highlighted. 
for the youth so they can understand. Why do I do it personally? I spend a lot of time on my computer, but when I go out into the bush or into a natural area, it's good for my soul. That's a, just a personal perception, but it's very good for me. I get back in tune with the natural environment. I listen to the birds. I, but I also look at the whole system while I'm there. And my mind is very much involved with thinking about that system. So from a personal perspective, it's good for my soul and my spirit. From a bigger perspective, it's good for many other people's souls and spirits, but it's also what is critically important right now is we need to have as much good condition biodiversity on the planet as possible, just in the state of the way the planet is at the moment. You were listening to Eclipse Podcast with Judith Fisher, ecologist, and Craig Bullock, economist. We make podcasts based on the best knowledge collected by expert groups, including scientists and other specialists. The vision of Eclipse is to ensure a sustainable future in which decisions affecting biodiversity and ecosystem services are based on a trusted evidence. For more information on Eclipse, consult our website at eclipse.eu where Eclipse is written with K, and follow us on social media. I'm Eva Banshagi. Until the next episode, stay tuned.